2: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to a special edition of Tasting Menu, an all-American-flavoured selection of coverage from the week. On our menu, a potential independent victory in Utah, how best to crack Russian hacking, and Donald Trump's unsettling fondness for Vladimir Putin. We'll also offer a sample of our other special election-based shows from Economist Radio, including an in-depth look at the rise of Donald Trump.
3: He has led a deeply isolated, secluded life. As a billionaire in New York, he's not someone who goes out to a store. He's not someone who goes for a walk on the street.
2: And a score to settle. Wall Street versus Main Street from our correspondents.
3: I don't think it's
1: surprising in the least that that Wall Street has faced this kind of criticism. You know, even though in some cases it's overdone, quite a lot of it is justified.
2: But let's start with the lead note from our United States section. My Brilliant Friend was the headline and we explored Donald Trump's infatuation with Russia's president, Vladimir Putin.
3: The bromance, to use Barack Obama's term, was fueled by Mr Putin's reference in December to Mr Trump as yaki or colourful which he mistranslates as brilliant.
2: Rather alarmingly, his statements often touch on specific vital
3: issues. In a stark example of his habit of disparaging America, he compares Mr Putin's strength and leadership favourably with Mr Obama's deflecting complaints about Russia's human rights record with the jibe that our country does plenty of killing also.
2: Perhaps it's not the first time Mr Trump has heard what he wanted to hear. Yet the platonic love affair began before this
3: misinterpretation. Such as NATO, probably Mr Putin's greatest bugbear. To remind, Mr Trump has said the alliance is obsolete, Upsetting Europeans by casting doubt on its mutual defence commitment.
2: According to one of his national security advisers, Mr Trump wants to leave his options open.
3: If that is his purpose, Mr Trump is being uncharacteristically selfless because his chumminess has no obvious electoral benefit. Unlike some of his other unorthodox views, such as his protectionism... Beyond a few extreme nationalists who misguidedly revere Mr Putin, there are far more votes to be lost than won by cozying up to him.
2: Well, you can't fight love, but you can read more about this disconcerting relationship and our analysis of it in this week's edition. Mr. Trump disputes the official American judgment that Moscow was behind a spate of cyber attacks, including intrusion into the Democratic National Committee's servers. But that's precisely what appears to have taken place, so how best to deal with it? Another article
0: in the section tackled that question. Despite the seriousness of the charge, the hack by China's PLA on US steel. Iran's Islamic revolutionary guards on American banks and by North Korea on Sony all pale by comparison, the decision to point the finger of blame unambiguously in Russia's direction was not straightforward for the Obama administration. When it comes to responding to cyber attacks, attribution is the first problem. First-rate cyber powers, such as America, have developed sophisticated techniques for identifying perpetrators – by analysing what are known in the business as sources and methods. Unfortunately, once you've laid your cards out, the enemy knows your play. Government-backed hackers know they can retain at least a degree of deniability if their accuser is reluctant to come up with the evidence. It is difficult to assign responsibility without revealing intelligence capabilities that will, in turn, allow foes to improve their defences and make spying on them harder. In cyber warfare, it seems the chosen tactic of defence is therefore attack. Joe Biden, the vice president, declared on NBC's Meet the Press that America would be sending Mr Putin a message at a time of our choosing and under circumstances that have the greatest impact. When asked whether the American public would know when the message had been sent, Mr Biden said... Hope not. So it looks like fresh sanctions are off the table then. Instead, it suggests that a covert, offensive cyber operation may be in the works. It
2: seems as if Russian attacks are trying to influence the outcome of the presidential election, specifically by making Hillary Clinton come off worse. But could the outcome of the vote itself be hacked? In a special episode of our science and technology podcast, Babbage, our data editor Ken Kukie put that question to security guru Bruce Schneier.
1: I'm not worried that the results will be changed, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities and we should worry about hacking. And this is a big issue. If not the presidential election, the uh, elections lower down. The systems are very vulnerable. And if not this year, some year soon, there will be a hack, or at least there'll be enough evidence of a hack that we don't trust the results.
2: While most of the attention is focused on the victory between Republicans and Democrats, Over in Utah, there's an upstart looking to disrupt the traditional voting split. As our article explained, no third-party candidate has won a state
0: since 1968. Might that be about to change? Diane, who works for the Mormon Church, grimaces as she considers her political choices. Well, Trump wants to be king, not president, and Hillary lacks integrity. I would vote for Mickey Mouse before I voted for either of them.
2: That certainly
0: says a lot about this year's race. Fortunately, there's one candidate on the ballot she can stomach. Levin McMullen, a 40-year-old Mormon who served in the CIA. He began with near zero name recognition and made the ballot in just 11 states. Yet recent polls put him in a dead heat with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in his native Utah.
2: A state that's been traditionally republican red for
0: quite some time. Republicans have won it by at least 18 percentage points in 12 straight general elections. Both George W. Bush in 2004 and Mitt Romney took over 70% of the vote. The main source of the party's dominance? the state's large population of Mormons. They make up over 70% of the electorate and lean more Republican than any other religious group. But this year, Donald Trump seems to be convincing them to vote otherwise. Mr Trump's relatively weak showing in Utah is partly explained by the strength of the state's economy, but it mostly reflects Mormon values, which include decency, kindness and humility.
2: With America embroiled in a bitter contest to find the lesser evil for office, a trip to the country's northerly neighbour offers us some respite. Liberty Moves North was our cover line this week, and as our leader explained, Canada is setting a fine example to the world.
0: Who will uphold the torch of openness in the West? Not America's next president. Would Mrs Clinton fit the bill? Hillary Clinton, the probable winner on November 8th, would be much better on immigration, but she has renounced her former support for ambitious trade deals. The closed mentality extends far beyond America's borders. Britain. Britain. Worried about immigrants and globalisation, has voted to march out of the European Union. Angela Merkel flung open Germany's doors to refugees, then suffered a series of political setbacks... Marine Le Pen, a right-wing populist, is the favourite to win the first round of France's presidential election next year. Canadian residency looks like an option for liberals then. In this depressing company of wall builders, door slammers and drawbridge raisers, Canada stands out as a heartening exception.
2: The country does more than just open its doors.
0: Canada not only welcomes newcomers, but works hard to integrate them. Its Charter of Rights and Freedoms proclaims the country's multicultural heritage.
2: And after taking the helm of a tight economic ship, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau,
0: can afford to let the sails out a bit. Canada has been managing its public finances conservatively for the past 20 years or so. Now in charge of a sluggish economy... Mr Trudeau can afford to give growth a modest lift by spending extra money on infrastructure.
2: Our briefing this week explores why Canada is so at ease with openness, so do pick up a copy and read more. We're jumping back into the tensions in America and animosity stirred up in the streets of New York, well, one street in particular. Wall Street has taken a lot of flack in this year's election as a widening anti-business sentiment has wound itself into the political discourse. Is big business success coming at the cost of the everyday man and woman? We thought we'd tackle that argument head on in a special edition of Money Talks. Here's our US business editor, Patrick Fowles, and free exchange columnist, Ryan Event, weighing in on Wall Street versus Main Street.
1: People are still very angry with Wall Street years after the crisis. Uh, particularly since some of its big firms, most recently Wells Fargo, continue to be embroiled in misconduct. And people are also really angry against big companies, which they accuse of being agents of globalization, shifting jobs out of America to other countries and and creating uh, monopolistic positions. So there's no question corporates are in the firing line. I think it's deserved a little bit. That they that they receive this kind of attention, and I, I don't think it's just about Wall Street being an agent of globalization. Uh, Wall Street has has done a lot to earn the ire of, of people over the last decade. It's culpable in in the you know the excesses that led to the financial crisis. Wall Street was appeared to be bailed out in, in a big way by Washington because it was seen as as too big to fail, that it couldn't be allowed to collapse. Voters felt themselves to be bearing the tax burden for that bailout and also not to be receiving similar assistance. So I don't think it's surprising in the least that, that Wall Street has faced this kind of criticism, you know, even though in some cases it's overdone, quite a lot of it is justified.
2: To hear how the rest of that argument panned out, take a listen to this week's Money Talks and let us know what you think, whichever street you hail from, by sending us an email to radio at com. For now, a dip into another of our election specials, And The Economist Asks looked at the rise of Donald Trump and the loneliness that drives him. I went to talk to his biographer... The Washington Post's Mark Fisher.
3: He has led a deeply isolated, secluded life. As a billionaire in New York, he's not someone who goes out to a store, he's not someone who goes for a walk on the street. His preference always is to go home by himself at night and watch TV. So he is someone who has basically taken in the world through television. And his language reflects that, and his language is kind of stuck in a period uh, when he was out and about with people when he was a kid, more than half a century ago.
2: We couldn't finish off this all-American tasting menu without some snippets overheard on the campaign trail in the past week. First, Texas and two polling stations consider Russia's request to observe voting at close hand.
3: We are unable to accommodate your request to visit a polling station.
2: Oprah Winfrey finds a novel way to sell Hillary Clinton to voters.
3: She's not coming over to your house. You don't have to like her.
2: Whatever gets people to the polls, I guess. And finally, Kellyanne Conway, Mr Trump's campaign manager, seems to be giving up on managing.
3: He delivers his own speeches, he's the guy who's running for the White House, and he has the privilege to say what he wants.
2: Well, the last part appeals to radio hosts. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback by email to radio at or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. In Washington, this is The Economist.